Well, I have to say I've got the most utmost respect for you all doing your PhDs and postgraduate research. I was in your position once studying Tudor history back in the early 2000s. I never got to finish my DPhil. I did my Masters um, and I got the opportunity to write books commercially. I took that, I postponed my DPhil. Um, I ended up becoming a researcher in the House of Commons and so then never went back to postgraduate research. So it's, it's great to be coming back to speak to people who are determined to continue with their academic careers, unlike myself. What I thought I'd do was to talk about how I you know, not only got into politics, but how I got into select committees, all party groups, and hopefully give you a flavor of maybe the unofficial channels, which um, Jessica spoke about right at the end, how you can then influence them using certain back channels. I was elected in um, May 2010, uh, I'm a Member of Parliament for Kingswood between Bristol and Bath. Um, I probably didn't necessarily expect to get elected at the time, but I was very fortunate um, and sort of re-elected in 2015. Now, um, Andrew spoke about how in 2010, for the first time ever, select committees uh, would decide to change a position that MPs were elected by their peers. So if you were chair of a select committee, you were elected by MPs from the whole house, and then depending on obviously the government majority, there was a coalition for 2010-2015, um, the number of MPs on each select committee were apportioned out depending on the proportion of votes and, or MPs uh, that a particular party had. So my background's in education. I used to actually work in the House of Commons when the Conservative Party was in opposition for Michael Gove, um, and as a historian, you know, that's why my passion is. But I decided when I became a Member of Parliament that I didn't just want to be a one-trick pony, that I thought I might expand my brief, and I decided to run for the Health Select Committee. Now, for any of you who've ever been involved in student elections, um, the election process for Select Committees is no different. It's effectively a popularity contest. Um, MPs have to put down whether they are willing to um, stand for election by going to the Whip's office and nominating and have this proposer and seconder. And then they put themselves up for election and you know, it comes to the day when you know, MPs file in, usually after Prime Minister's questions, up on committee corridor to vote. Only Conservative MPs can vote for Conservative members who are actually members of the Select Committee. Everyone can vote for the chair. The chair election usually takes place two or three weeks beforehand. Uh, but say on the Health Select Committee, it was like four places, it was three places for Labour, it was two places for Liberal Democrats. And so it's sort of you have that balance. Um, and at the time, I was elected in 2010, there was 100 new Conservative MPs. These were fiercely fought over. And some select committees are more popular than others. So I would say to any aspiring you know, MP who then gets into Parliament, you know, the Treasury Select Committee is incredibly popular, the Business Select Committee is incredibly popular. Usually that's down also to the fact that many MPs come with a business background and think they can then stand for these committees to reflect that sort of personal background. Um, I don't really have a health background apart from you know, my father and my mother worked in medicine, and, but I wanted to go into health policy, to learn health policy by sitting at the feet of Stephen Dorrell, who I'd been elected as the chair of the Health Select Committee, and I thought, fantastic opportunity, and it is. For a backbench MP, it's effectively like going back to university again. You know, you have two sessions a week, usually in the mornings. Um, you have the brief sent to you over the weekend. You, you, and it's a really great opportunity as a member of parliament to learn new facts, new figures, and to become well-informed about particular policy debates. Um, 
I happened to be in a situation where I decided to stand for the Health Select Committee, where I then found out the government was publishing a white paper a couple of months later with a massive reorganisation of the health service, which I wasn't really expecting, and then found myself sort of thrust into a year and a half's worth of just the Select Committee focusing on the reorganisation of the NHS, the NHS white paper, and whatever bills and acts were then going through NHS Health and Social Care Act at the time. But what I wanted to talk about was actually, from my experience as a select committee member first, before talking about all party groups and MPs' debates, so I want to talk to you about access. Because as historians, you know, we live for facts. Um, you know, we, we gather them, we try and you know, interpret them. Um, we can never have too many facts. But I have to say, you know, it's a very different case and point when you come to Parliament. Because Member of Parliaments are interested in facts but they are only interested in really the killer facts that they can put across in a debate. You will quickly lose their attention if you do not have those facts that really summarise you know, a debate in its entirety. And that can either be in the House of Commons or the Select Committee. Now, I served on the Health Select Committee for three years from 2010 to 2013. I then moved across to the Education Select Committee. I sat on two Select Committees for a time, and I served on Education from 2012 to 2013. 14. And there are very different types of committees, and obviously the committee does reflect, as Jessica said, the type of you know, political um, acts or bills or uh, um, you know, particularly the media attention. Some select committees can be quite heady, and MPs can sometimes feel they're acting like Kavanaugh QC, so in terms of interviewing you know, the actual panel. But what I wanted to talk to you about was obviously what happens informally because there is a route into which you can get your research to MPs that Jessica talked about that I do believe is, is, is a genuine one. Because as an MP, you are given all the written evidence that is submitted, and it's huge, you know, it comes in a box almost. And unless you know, you're particularly interested in the sort of somebody who's going to give oral evidence, you'll pull out their written submission and probably read that the night before. But the critical thing for an MP is you get the briefing which is a 30-page document, usually covered in yellow paper on either side, and, and that is your essential reading. It, it's discourteous, I think, if you, if you don't even make the effort to read that, but you'd be surprised how many MPs do not do so, even at the beginning of the session. Um, and then I tried always to read the additional evidence, but there was just simply no way I could read everything. And so I'd say if you're trying to influence and access MPs, you know, imagine an MP going into, with all these other commitments, going into a, a session. As uh, Jessica mentioned, we choose what um, reports to undertake in a private session where we usually sit around as a group. Uh, there are some MPs with you know, their particular pet subjects that they keep on pressing until often they might succeed sometimes. But I would say, there's, you know, in terms of how reports are chosen, obviously there's the element of scrutiny. And that you know, is very important, I think, through the year. There are pinpoint research um, and articles and reports that the Select Committee makes um, on the government, on, you know, in, when it comes to appointment hearings, when it comes to the annual um, hearing of the Secretary of State, for instance. You know, these are all sort of little blips and points in the calendar. But there is a sort of flexibility, I think, where backbenchers are allowed to have their report. And so if you are interested in trying to steer a committee in a particular way, you know, there's no harm in getting in contact with MPs, either via email um, or to, you know, to write to them talking about your research, why you think it's important for the committee, and would they like to meet you. They can only say no. Um, I'd also highlight the 
contact of getting befriending a researcher because when it comes to MPs making speeches in the House of Commons, often their researchers will be gathering those notes together, will be putting that information together. And if there's any facts or figures that you can provide a researcher that will make their life easier, then they're more likely to then come to you in the future. You've then built up a network by which then you become invaluable to the MP's office and become invaluable to the MP themselves. So when you have the, the final report has been discussed and when you, it's been chosen, I think then you have a series of you know, evidence sessions where MPs have read their briefs and there are, a series, sadly, a series of questions. And some committee chairs are more determined that they stick to the questions that are effectively written by the research um, capacity of the clerks. Um, but MPs obviously don't just want to ask the questions that they're given. You know, we sit around in a pre-briefing half an hour before, and someone will say, right, who's taking questions one to four? Right, you do questions one to four. We're going to lead off now. The chair will lead off, and then Chris, I'll go to you on questions five to nine. Valerie will go from you from nine to 14. And that is how we sort of divvy up the select committee questions. But I don't just want to ask questions five to nine. You know, it might be a particular topic that I'm interested in, and some members will, you know, take obesity as their particular interest. Um, some people will take homeopathic medicine as their particular interest, not many members, and some will take you know, the finance as you know, a particular interest. Um, and MPs like to be able to, to show off and try and show what they can do, and obviously knowing that people are watching the select committees. Um, they're also interested effectively in fishing. What you're trying to do when you're asking a question, you might ask the question that is in the brief but you are also then following up with the supplementary. And what you're trying to do is to ask a question that will lead to an answer that then will have equal weight to the written evidence that then might you know, be a line in the report. So you know, certainly when I was on the Health Select Committee and the Education Select Committee, I was trying to get the witnesses to say a particular line that then I knew would be written down in the report, which when the report was published you know, might be a news story. Or equally, I knew that someone from the lobby was in the back of the room watching the, the debate. You know, as an MP, you probably want to you know, be written up as, as part of a, the select committee. So you are then looking to ask to do a star turn and, and pin down a, a, you know, a particular witness. You know, obviously, we have some particular celebrity witnesses. Some meetings are more high profile than others. I can remember sort of particularly heady um, Sessions like with Michael Gove, for instance, um, when you know, he got quite raucous and sort of you know, trying to steer sort of certain questions in certain ways. But this, as you say, as you as researchers, you know, providing additional information to MPs that may be outside the official channel of evidence, you, know, you not necessarily have to make the written evidence, you may contact an MP's office with certain key facts and figures that may be new, you may want to point in the direction of certain you know, key figures or facts or quotes for them to ask that question. I think that's entirely legitimate to do so. Um, there is also a process, and I understand in the first session you've been discussing you know, what you can do in terms of media strategies, routes by which you can create um, evidence in the newspapers that then feeds through to the MPs, which then can be quoted. So it's sort of a positive feedback mechanism taking place here. I just, you know, my own experience as a backbench MP was I tried to make as much use as possible of written parliamentary questions. Why? Because effectively, when written parliamentary questions went down and the, the department responded, 
they would produce sort of new facts and figures. It's maybe not necessarily new. They may be hidden away in a report somewhere, but because the fact that the WPQ, as it was called, came out as fresh evidence, I could then parcel it off to a newspaper. I could give it to them as an exclusive. And I could say, so have you seen, I've asked this question, but I'm not giving it to anyone else yet, and you have sort of, I think, 24 hours before it goes online, that you could say to a paper, here's the, you know, the new evidence that shows there are, I don't know, 70,000 children um, have been excluded for a particular sort of misdemeanor. And you can, then that could become the story. And the newspaper story can then become you know, a fact which then can be fed into a select committee inquiry. Um, in my role as when I was in the all-party group on history and archives, I worked with Tristan Hunt when we put together a report on history in schools. Now, the actual evidence there was not, you know, you know when we got our role as members of parliament, not particularly academic, but what we did, was to, I, what I did, was to take a series of written parliamentary questions, all of which had new evidence on history uptake for GCSE and A-level and across sort of the region, Combining that all into one report, called it sort of history in schools, and before I know it, I was on the um, Today programme on Radio 4, using my position as vice chairman of the all-party group, to then argue a particular case for why there was a problem with history uptake in sort of areas of the country. And so you know, I always say to people in politics, whether it's party politics or, you know, it's all about titles, and the media is looking for people to go on their shows. You know, there is always the Victoria Derbyshire programme. There, the, the thirst is you know, unbelievable that they will look for authority figures to go on. And so you know, if you have that title there as an MP, you can then feed it to be on the programme. And I'd say that equally to yourself as a researcher. You've got the title there, or you've produced a report. No matter how short, it doesn't matter. You know, a a four-page report can have as equal weight to a 400-page report. MPs won't care. You know, obviously the institutional response, you know, the academic response will recognise the value of a report, but a report's a report in an, in an MP's world. And so, you know, if you've got something that is time sensitive and you want to get it out there, get it out there as soon as you can. Because the longer a fact is out there, the longer it becomes, I think, what you could call, a, you know, without sounding like E.H. Carr, a political fact that is repeated endlessly and ground into the soul of Parliament so that what you have is not only select committees repeating it, you have then it being repeated by MPs in the House of Commons. Because let, don't forget that when you have select committee members, they get almost precedence when they come to speak on a topic when it's government legislation or opposition day debates in the House of Commons. If you're a, you know, a, a, a member of the Health Select Committee or a member of the Education Select Committee, you're likely, if you haven't spoken too much, to be able to get to speak in that debate higher up. Certainly if you're a chair of a committee, you'll get sort of called very early on the debate. So you have those opportunities as select committee members to put across facts and figures in a debate in Parliament. And the more that that takes place, the more it gets picked up by you know, a wider group of MPs that will put depending on political party, in order to put across a you know, message. And ultimately, I think the highest echelon it can probably get is to if David Cameron repeats it in PMQs. Um, and to that, actually, when you look at the slide, I'd probably add a tenth one, if it was all right, Jessica, in terms of where I'd look for uh, to go, is actually you have the researcher element here, and it does sort of fit under this umbrella. But we have the Parliamentary Resources Unit as part of the Conservative Party, which produces material for every single debate. This is not 
the same as the House of Commons Library, which is totally impartial, the Parliamentary Resources Unit I pay two and a half grand a year to belong to as a Conservative. I can't remember what the Labour Party um, equivalent's um, called, but that exists also as part of the PLP service. So as a, you know, as a Conservative MP, if I need any briefings ready for a debate, the PRU send me across um, the material that I can then use. Um, and that is, again, sort of collected material of facts from select committees from all party groups putting across a particular party line, of course, but nonetheless will be used by MPs. And then also, I think, at um, Conservative Central Office, ECHQ, you will have researchers there in the Conservative Research Department who are producing lines to take for MPs and debates, who are producing debate packs and producing sort of key facts that are then used to hammer across a message. And that's the same in the Labour Party, that's the same in the Green Party, the same in the Liberal Democrat Party. So if you want your facts to be used in a party political sense in order to drive a debate, there is no harm in getting in contact with the relevant researcher at the Conservative Research Department, you know, the Labour equivalent, um, in order so that they have that material to hand. And obviously that material could come secondhand through the press, but nonetheless trying to create these facts so that they become well-known, I think, is vitally important for MPs. You know, that actually, when we look at how debates are driven, it's not just the battle of ideas. You know, it is the battle of the facts. And we see that endlessly sometimes, don't we, when we look at, you know, people standing up when it comes to the health service and people say, oh, well, look at the health service in Wales. Look at, you know, what's going on is waiting times and the different interpretation that can be placed on waiting times by different sort of parties um, goes to show that... You know, whatever you are researching or whatever key facts you want to get across, there is a thirst, you know, rightly or wrongly, and maybe used for the wrong agenda, but that's ultimately what debate is about, that people want to try and take sort of you know, prism of facts in a particular way. So you know, my advice as a select committee, previous select committee member is that do get in contact using these unofficial channels, that you, know, you, have, you could get, you know, get to know, look online, look at the biographies of the members, who are of that select committee, um, you know, if you feel that you know, there's an inquiry coming up and you want them to ask certain questions, there is no harm whatsoever in saying, or oh, if you wanted to ask your supplementary, you know, there's a question here um, to be asked of this witness who maybe has said something previously, you, know, you want to follow on the record of someone who's being asked something. Um, I would say with this though, and I know Jessica said, make sure you know, sort of you're, you're prompt with your deadlines. With MPs, it is about topicality as well. So, you, know, you would want to get in contact with an MP maybe just the day before um, or two days before, not too long before, because it simply it just won't be on their radar. And yes, yeah. You have the, the select committee official process with the clerks and the, the whole parliamentary process is top-notch. But it is only as good as the MPs that serve on the committee. And you know, those MPs will be asking the questions, um, and those are the MPs which I still think you can access and, and, and influence in particular ways to ask certain questions. So I think I'll leave it there, and I hope that's given you sort of a, a view from the other side, really. Thank you.